Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and yes, I'm your host, Rob Watson. As always, we have a really great show lined up for you today. Um, As you know, if you're a regular listener, we range from everything from politics to music to um, books, and one of our favorites is films. And so today is a film show. Um, The film we are focusing on is actually the um, sequel to a film that is kind of an LGBTQ classic. Um, In 2006, the movie Boy Culture came out. Um, At the time, uh, well, I don't know about the time of that, but back in the day, uh, if you wanted to see films that were particularly LGBTQ-related, if you had Netflix, and I'm talking about when Netflix was only available on DVDs, um, they became a great source for those because they had a great LGBTQ library, and you got access to films that you couldn't find elsewhere. And that's where I saw the original um, 2006 movie, Boy Culture. Um, the Boy Culture kind of stood head and above a lot of the independent gay films. It was better acted. Um, it had a tight script. Um, it didn't portray a story that was your usual, you know, oh, my God, isn't it horrible? They got beaten up. And, I mean, tragic stories of being gay, which were typical because that was a lot of people's experience, and there was a lot of drama to put on the film, on film based on that. But boy culture was different. Um, Boy culture did follow this story of a sex worker um, named X, and um, X lived with two other people, um, one person he was in love with, and the other one he was kind of a parental figure to, and that was a story of boy culture. Um, that movie was cited by Rotten Tomatoes and is on the list of their best LGBTQ plus movies of all time, Um, and at the end of that movie, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, um, the lead character, X, does come together with the, the, his partner at the end of that movie, and they become a couple. So it's been a long awaited for the sequel to come out to find out what happened to them, and it has arrived. The new film is called Boy Culture, Generation X, and it finds that X and Andrew, who is the former roommate, then boyfriend, and now in the new film X, as in EX, um, and they've gone through on again, off again uh, portions of their relationship, and when the movie opens, they are now off again. They're both 40, they're broken up, but they are living together in a home out of the financial needs to do that. And that is where the story starts. Um, uh, X 
decides that for financial reasons, he's going to go back into the business of sex trade. But uh, he finds out that uh, 10 plus years later, he's no longer the flavor of the month. And the entire industry for sex trade has transitioned and it has been molded by different progressive attitudes and positive attitudes about sex positivity, et cetera, and he is now a fish out of water. Um, luckily, in comes new character and, quite frankly, a gem in the new version, um, and the character's name is Chase, and he's spelled with a Y, and he makes sure you know that every time he says it. Um, but he is a Gen Z sex worker who is big on attitude, and he is completely savvy as to how things work, and he basically, even though he's younger, and the kind of iteration of a similar character to him in the original movie was kind of the child version of, of the two men, he becomes almost like a mentor to X and um, shows him the ropes on, on how to get back into the world that they know. So today, um, we have to talk about the new film is the director and co-writer, um, Q. Allen Brocks, and um, the actor, who is incredibly talented, um, who stars as Chase in the film, Jason um, Carceres. And Jason and Allen are both standing on deck. We're going to bring them on in a minute uh, to talk about the film. But before we do that, we are going to pivot to Brody Levesque. Brody is uh, not only the co-host of the show, he is also the editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Blade magazine, which is the only – well, actually, you should read the Washington Blade, too. But um, those are the primary gay publications you should be reading every single day. They have um, original journalism. They cover stories with their own field of reporters, and it is the news you need to know. You can find the Los Angeles Blade at losangelesblade.com. But right now, let's hear it from the horse's mouth and welcome Brody Levesque to the show. Hey, Brody. Okay, Rob. Hey to all of our listeners. We really appreciate all of you, thank you for subscribing to the podcast, listening to the show. Uh, it's valuable to us, and we value you very much. Um, since we're in entertainment, I'm going to start off with a story. Uh, I've got to give a shout-out to my colleague, the senior culture editor and columnist Nancy Durant at the London Evening Standard. She had something happen in an interview that rarely occurs where the subject of an interview suddenly tells you a story and you just realize that you're hearing it for the first time. Uh, this had to do with one of the two stars of the uh, current uh, Showtime Paramount Plus uh, series streaming, uh, Fellow Travelers, and the star uh, was Jonathan Bailey. And he was in the interview uh, with Nancy, and they were talking. Uh, he's also a star of another uh, Netflix series called Bridgerton, um, and they were talking back and forth a little bit about his career, uh, the whole thing with fellow travelers, which is based loosely around characters coming from the Lavender Scare uh, through to the AIDS crisis, covering a lot of ground. 
Uh, it's basically talking about closeted gay men uh, and, and their experiences and that sort of thing. As they're in the process of the interview, Nancy asked him a question that was about looking at the current trend since we were seeing a lot of LGBTQ rights being basically rolled back. Uh, and in the UK as well, which is where the Evening Standard and uh, Bailey is actually a uh, native Englishman. And he told a story uh, from last, uh, this past October. He was invited as an honored guest in an award, Ward E, at the Human Rights Campaign's uh, annual national uh, dinner. This year, uh, keynote speakers included the President of the United States uh, and the Vice President. Uh, in attendance also was Dr. Joe Biden, uh, the second gentleman of the United States, uh, Doug Emhoff, and uh, quite a few uh, other luminaries um, that were uh, there for it. Uh, the dinner was fantastic. As a matter of fact, our White House reporter, uh, Christopher uh, Kane, covered it, um, and all's well. Well, what happened that was different was the next day. Um, Jonathan told Nancy he'd gotten up, went to go get coffee at a nearby coffee shop, and while he was in the coffee shop, he was accosted by someone who got bitterly, bitterly homophobic to the point of threatening to shoot him, uh, which obviously rattled the actor's cage. Um, you know, he's in this crowded coffee shop in Washington, D.C., of all places, uh, and this man starts threatening him. Uh, and he told the reporter, you know, it was terrifying. And, of course, at that moment, everything's, you know, kind of uh, slowed down. Uh, Washington being what it is, uh, three people leaped into action with their cell phones and started recording it. Uh, he found out as the guy was leaving that he was from Pennsylvania um, and a bunch of other things. But his takeaway from that, and this is what he told the Evening Standard, and I'm quoting directly now, people are still living in the closet or they've had a moment where they're watching and they realize that this is their father's story or their mother's story or people who have been affected by this and for the first time are understanding the trauma. People are so shocked that when such as recent history, there are still people in the world operating under that sort of belief system, and then even more so when people attack them in such a way, meaning the homophobic thing. So he was referring back to the character he plays in Fellow Travelers, but he was comparing it and contrasting it to what he experienced uh, in that Washington coffee shop. Um, Washington, obviously, is a very blue place, and so it is a little shocking for that, but not unsurprising. Um, and so I, I made a note of that. Uh, in our coverage yesterday, because this is kind of important. You know, there are certain things that are going on right now, uh, and especially things that are very hateful that we really, really, really need uh, to be paying attention to, especially now with so much polarity over events in the Middle East. I think it's really, you know, terribly important uh, that, you know, we take note of things like that. Um, okay, moving on. Um, I want to give a shout-out to ABC News' Robert, uh, Robin Roberts. Uh, my colleague there will be interviewing Brittany Griner for a special. And uh, Ms. Griner, as you know, who was in a Russian penal system camp and was uh, actually a year ago at the beginning of the month freed, uh, will be sitting down with Robin and discussing everything that happened, 
her career in professional basketball, and, of course, the whole uh, trauma that she went through for about basically a year and some change in Russia. Uh, so that, that's kind of a thing that we're looking, uh, looking towards as well. Uh, across the board, one of the other things, Rob, and I'm, uh, is that we're also looking at a surge uh, in hate crime incidences, not only just here in Southern California, but across the United States. Uh, FBI Director Chris Ray, a testimony uh, before the House Appropriations Committee last week, indicated to members of the House on the committee that one of the things that people need to really start paying attention to is this polarity, are these problems, and the very real possibility uh, for violence. And, and that, you know, is something that, you know, it can go from what Jonathan Bailey exposed uh, to in that Washington coffee shop uh, to something a lot worse. Uh, we just saw here in Beverly Hills last weekend an elderly Jewish couple uh, who were badly beaten in a hate crime. Now, fortunately, the Beverly Hills Police Department were able to arrest the perp. But, again, it's a cautionary note. So we, we really do uh, need to pay attention uh, to things like that. Um, and a year ago, we marked passage of the Respect of Marriage Act, which was signed by the president, uh, codifying, of course, same-sex marriage. But then again, with all the court fights going on, that one may get dragged in the court. Um, and with that, I'll throw it to you. Okay, great. Um, yeah, a couple of things I want to mention, though, that are going on, um, and Brody, you may have some comment on, is I really think we have to pay attention to what's happening to women's health care and the fact that um, a decision has been tossed to the Supreme Court that has always been a decision of the, um, of the FCC in terms of, of uh, pharmaceuticals and their approvals, um, what has happened to um, the woman named Kate in Texas and the horror there. Um, I think all of that is highly relevant to the LGBTQ community as well because if they come after women's health care, they come at which are Grant, we have enough women in our community as well um, that are affected by that. But also, um, uh, you know, our trans health care is equally under the, the um, purview of the Republicans to go after. Um, so some, some big things going on there challenging that. Um, I also want to point out on what you mentioned, fellow travelers, the, the really poignant thing about that series is it is about the lavender scare, and it is a really important and not well-discussed part of LGBTQ history where literally gay people and bisexual people were being ferreted out, just like um, McCarthy was doing to people who were perceived as communists. They were um, being persecuted, threatened, um, exposed and and their lives ruined um, and it is we worry that the AIDS crisis is not taught well enough and a lot of the younger people are unaware of that and even less of them have been probably aware of the lavender scare and um, even some older ones are unaware of the lavender scare but this series does a really good job of digging in to what was that was like at that time and it is interesting that, you know, the hatred is, has moved seats, um, and Jonathan Bailey has bravely 
pointed that out in his own personal experience. So, you know, um, interesting times. But speaking of going from a historical standpoint to modern day um, is the two versions of boy culture, boy culture, the original from 2006, and boy culture generation X. And with that, I'd like to welcome uh, the director and co-writer, uh, Alan, to the show, as well as one of the stars, Jason. Welcome, guys. Hi, thank thanks you for having me. me. It's a pleasure to be here. My, my pleasure. Thank you so much, and thank you for what you do. Um, w- wonderfully written and acted film. Um, just, just really great performances, uh, particularly from you, Jason. I, I thought you were outstanding, and I'm a little bit glad the other actors aren't on the show so that I can say I think you stole <laughs> the movie <laughs> from them. So, yeah, um, that's very kind. <laughs> but uh, if, if, they, if they hear this, I didn't say it. So, right. um, Ellen. You're what? <laughs> yeah. um, Jason, I'm going to have you switch back to your original speaker because the uh, AirPods are not picking you up well. Um, no worries. Yeah, no problem. Is this better? Um, Alan, I wanna, yeah, that's a lot better. Alan, I want to start with you, though, because you, you really, you know, um, boy culture was not your first round at the gay romance rodeo. Um, you actually were the, the mastermind and, and talent behind the Eating Out um, series of gay romance. How what what got you into that genre? Yes, um, yeah. So, Boy Culture was my second feature film. Eating Out was my first. Um, what really got me into it was I just wanted to see stories about me and the people that I knew, and there weren't really many of them. So uh, that's kind of why I made them. The Eating Out film started out as just a joke in film school. I had to write pages every week for a class. So I uh, decided to write uh, something super sexual and gay just so that we could read it out loud in class. <laughs> um, and people liked reading it every week. So um, I, I wrote the full script and I never planned to make it. You know, I had um, more, uh, more dramatic pieces that I wanted to make. I ran into a producer who was looking for something queer uh, that could be made for a tiny budget. And I said, well, I have this script, and that's how Eating Out came to be. Um, and I don't know, all the stories I've written since then have just centered LGBTQ people and people of color because that's what I know, and you're supposed to write what you know. <laughs> exactly. Now, you were born in Guam and grew up there. What was What was it like being a child and coming aware of your own sexuality in that environment? Well, Guam is super conservative. It's a very, very Catholic um, place. Uh, and, you know, this was in the 80s. I, was in, I left in Guam in the 80s, so I didn't even know any gay people <laughs> that, I, that I knew of. Um, so it was it was it was terrifying. I didn't know really even what it meant. There was there was not much media that I could access. 
you know, we had no um, internet back then, so it was just whatever blockbuster Hollywood films were released. It was kind of our entertainment. <laughs> so I didn't know much yeah. about myself or, or the queer community as growing up. Yeah. And Jason, you grew up in South Florida and were a Boy Scout, which are traditionally <laughs> kind of not in the most gay-friendly environments either. Um, what what was that like for you? Um, I I think my my upbringing was a, a little different than than what Alan was describing. Um, Miami's pretty pretty liberal for the most part up until recent years, actually, um, which is very right. interesting because it's the whole city is built on Cuban immigration, pretty much, but. That's neither here nor there. So my upbringing was a little different. It was a little bit more liberal. Um, my parents were Cuban refugees. So one of the, I mean, one of the first things Castro did when he first came to power was dismantle the Catholic Church. So it's not like there was a strong religious background. So it was more based around love and support and like, well, if this is what makes you happy, then go for it. So it was, it was a very welcoming environment. Um, it's funny you mentioned the Boy Scouts. <laughs> it, my experience was n- not that at all um, in the Boy Scouts. It was very open-minded, very um, welcoming, um, and honestly, pretty gay sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good, and I've seen some of those movies as well. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I, I, I'm glad you had a, had a, a, a good Boy Scout experience, um, Alan. What, um, when it came to um, boy culture, what was your inspiration for that? I mean, that film station of being a standout because it didn't focus on the oh my God, they're coming out, they get, they're getting beaten up for coming out type of of story, it was much more, the characters were much more self-actualized and it featured more of the relationship between the characters than it did the, oh, oh, look how gay people are treated in society. Yeah, so like at the time, um, before I started making films, it seemed like most LGBTQ representation was either we were the butts of the jokes, um, you know, or uh, it was rooted in our trauma. And that's just not why I go to movies. <laughs> I, I, I like to go to movies to be entertained and have fun and to forget about things. So that's kind of one of the things that drew me to boy culture is it it's not rooted in trauma. It's about joy and celebration and it's about sex there was so much there's so much discussion and um, so many points of view about sex in the book that I just loved it I I was like you know we're the reason people treat us differently is because of sex and romance and who we love Um, but we're not allowed to talk about sex so i always made it a point in my work to um, be very upfront about it. So there's a lot of sex in a lot of my work because uh, that is the thing that people are really, that people were really, really afraid of. It would be, it was the sex. So um, put it out there and 
and examine it and look at it. And we are just like any other people who have sex. There's all kinds of fun and interesting stories about it, and it affects our lives in so many ways. So the book followed X with a different client every uh, chapter. And somehow this sexual experience he'd have with this client informed his life outside of that client. And I just thought that was amazing. So um, when I got the opportunity to adapt it to the first film, I jumped on it and uh, turned it turned it into a feature, which was a little bit challenging because there were so many different characters in the book. But while we were making that feature, I thought this would also make a great series. What if every time um, X went, every every episode could revolve around X uh, visiting a new client and how that interaction informs the rest, the rest of his life. So even in the making of the first one, we're, we were thinking a little bit about the structure for the second one now. And when, from the time that that you made the first one, well, first of all, there was quite a few years gaps. I mean, 2006 yes, to there was. 2023. <laughs> um, so, so pardon the bluntless, bluntness of my question, but what took so long? Oh, right. I, I got a lot to say about that. So first, you know, what we were doing at the time, it was uh, the reason it was groundbreaking is because <laughs> no one else was doing it. No one thought it would make money. No one thought that um, there was an audience for it. So something very sexual and very queer was a really hard sell. We started pitching the series the year Boy Culture came out, 2006. We were going around taking meetings, pitching it, but it was very, very queer and very, very sexual. There was nothing on, on TV at the time. If you had to be, if you wanted to be queer, you couldn't have sex. If you wanted to be sexual, it had to be straight sex. So that environment started to change in the past, over, over the past 18 years. That and the explosion of streaming um, allowed for smaller budgeted television, episodic uh, programming to, to happen. So uh, we, so we started pitching it in 2006. We started around 2012, 13. We were like, well, let's just start making something on our own. Matthew, the writer of the novel, and I started writing these episodes, um, kind of being shepherded by our producers, Phil Pierce and Stephen Israel. And this was about 2012, 2013. Uh, we started writing these. Um, then we just took a while to raise money. <laughs> so we're like, okay, well, now we've written them. Let's go out and raise some money. That took a while. We raised the money, and we shot it actually in 2017, right, Jason? Yeah, 2017. So, or 2018. Um, so, so I, think it's been was, a long time since I think I was 20. Oh, I'm not going to say my age. <laughs> I think it was 2017. <laughs> yeah, I think we were all in our 20s when we shot it. Uh, <laughs> but then right, COVID right. happened, and we needed to raise more money, uh, more money to finish it. So it's been a really long process. We started pitching in the Bush administration. We wrote it in the Obama administration. We shot it under Trump. And it's finally coming out under Biden. So this is like epic. It's a very, very long <laughs> haul. And that's how some projects are in Hollywood. This is how it is. Yeah. It's well it it the transition is actually really fascinating um between the two. Um the you brought back the two lead actors and um and honestly they both uh did not age that much to me, but maybe that's just my 
perception. They um, didn't, that, uh, and that made it so the, much weirder with this huge, <laughs> this huge time jump that they looked like only a couple of years older. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like honestly, it was, and their vocal quality was the only thing that kind of gave it away because they they did have like slightly older sounding voices. But they both looked facially and, and physically um, very similar. Now, in the original, though, the third character was a character named Joey that lived with them. Mm-hmm. And that character didn't come back in the third one. Was that a conscious decision or a, a practical one Yeah, on, on not bringing back well, Joey? It, it was a practical decision. So when we were writing the new series, we knew that we couldn't afford to shoot it in Seattle, where the original took place. It would have to take place in LA, and so we were, couldn't think of a reason. It just felt weird if more than two characters moved here, and <laughs> we're suddenly now living in LA altogether. It just didn't feel right. And if he was still living with them and moved there with them, that would be an entirely less relatable dynamic for us. So um, we decided only X and Andrew would have moved to LA. Jason was a brilliant casting choice um, because he more than filled that third spot. I mean, to me, it, it elevated the, the third component of the equation much, much more. And Jason, I, to your credit, I mean, you, you had a really good script to work with, so that was definitely there. But I absolutely loved how you um, elevated the character from what could have been fairly cliche to being really very human. And a lot of the things where I was burst out loud laughing over were really looks and reactions you gave that weren't even in the script. So, I mean, it's like, that's why in all seriousness, I really do think you stole the show, but don't tell anybody else I said that. yeah. Um, what was I, your I think a lot of that was. You... Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, you, what, were you, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, I think a lot of that came from the uh, environment that Alan created on set because everything was so stress free and fun that it allowed for this kind of like playful energy to develop where I could kind of like be myself within the parameters of the character and, um, create this like full life for Chase where it's not just what you read on the page. It's, it's so much more. He's got thoughts, he's got interests, he's got backstory. And that's where kind of like, like the looks are kind of aligned in themselves, but as you said, they're not written, but for me, they kind of fit with the character. They were just natural. And the fact that Alan created such an environment where it was free to play helped for all of that to kind of emerge for me. What were your thoughts about it, that character when you first read it and, and what excited you about playing it? Um, what excited me about playing it was Alan's name, to be honest. And I know I keep saying this at every interview, so I'm sorry if I'm embarrassing you, Alan, but he was pretty essential to my, I guess, discovering of my, sexuality at an early age because as we were talking about earlier there weren't a lot of lgbtq uh films or music or content or art um back when i was a teenager 
Um, so what, what I found online was all the eating out movies, believe it or not. So I remember watching eating out as a short film first, correct me if I'm wrong, Alan, but the first one was a short, right? No, or no something like feature. that. It, it was, was a feature. It might have felt short. <laughs> it was a, it was a, it was more of like a. There you were three characters only. Had a place right? where they just posted a scene. <laughs> Maybe it was that. Maybe I saw a scene first, but then I was like, "Ooh, I need more." And then these eating out movies just kept coming out, um, and then boy culture eventually. And I was like, "Oh," so I had been familiar with Alan's work for a very long time, and then a friend sent me. Um, it was Daryl's tweet asking for actors who fit the character description for Chase. And, of course, I jumped on it, and I emailed. I don't, I don't know if the email went to you, Alan, the first initial email with the, here's my resume, I want to be part of this. Um, but I sent over the email, um, and I don't even think I got the full script at first. I just got the, the audition scene for Chase. Um, so I don't believe I even read the script until I was cast. Honestly, it was all because of Alan's notoriety that drove me oh, to perfect. actually audition for this. So when you were, because you were pretty young when you saw the original, um, although a, a, a full disclosure, I've read your bio, so I know your real age, but, um, yeah. you know, for purposes of this interview, <laughs> you, you, were, you were 18 when you filmed this movie. Um, so, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but when you did see the original um, uh, boy culture, did you ever did you fantasize about being in a future version of it? Um, I w- I would say that I fantasized about being in films like it. I don't know if I specifically was like I want to be in the next boy culture um, specifically, but. I did have every intention of then pursuing a career in the arts that was heavily focused on LGBTQ content, mainly because of, you know, all, all the, the little content that I did consume growing up that did kind of shape me. And I wanted to be part of that for the next generation also. So it, it did kind of drive me to pursue this niche in the art field. Now, you have also been super, super effective um, in playing roles on stage and then um, particularly in the LA area, um, some really significant stage work. Um, what, what is your preference um, between those environments, between working in theater versus movies? And what, um, what is the bigger growth area for you having done both of those? I think I think theater will always kind of be where my true passion lies. Cause I grew up doing theater. I went to college for theater performance. So that's, that's where the passion is. Um, however, I like to eat. And theater in Los Angeles <laughs> does not pay that well. <laughs> so I, I will always defer to a film job over theater. But my true passion always lies in theater. I feel like there's, there's more there's more of a chance for exploration. Sometimes film moves so quickly that it comes down to know your lines, know when to say them, and then we move on because we're on a schedule, we're on a budget, things have to keep rolling. Theater, we can rehearse the same play for over two months before we even open. And then you get to live with the character. 
you, the only downside is that it is the same performance um, for months at a time sometimes. Granted, of course, there are little nuances because the audience can like feed you different energy one night and then it's a little different or someone drops a line or it's, it's more exciting because you never really know what's going to happen even though it's been so rehearsed. Um, but I think, I think I'm going to have to go with film going forward. You know, times are tough. <laughs> so you're you've you've excelled at playing gay characters. I mean, and 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 I don't mean that in a cliche way. I mean that like you have not even right gay. Can you imagine that stuff? <laughs> oh, that would be I'm a kidding. disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> so so yes, he yes he is, folks. You know, um, and and women in the audience have just gone a oh, shucks. Oh well, um, but um, but you played you played I mean on um, uh, Criminal Minds you played you know a victim um, you know innocent kid you know being like literally almost tortured um, you played um, other gay characters what what are you got your sights on for the future what is your your dream um, type of role that you would like to play? I've always really wanted to play some sort of sociopathic serial killer. So <laughs> something, something along, actually, like Evan Peterson's uh, Dahmer, that would have been fantastic. That would have been a dream come true. And also gay. So sexuality doesn't really, I mean, if it's gay, if it's a gay character, that's totally fine. If it's a straight character, that's fine. I just want him to be a serial killer. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yeah. Step step out of the innocence uh, uh, role modeling that, that you've been doing. Um, yeah. I mean, primarily my work is in comedy, so it would be nice to do something a little bit more serious, a little bit more dramatic that I would be able to sink my teeth into. So a thriller-like serial killer sounds like a challenge. Yeah. Well, you know, and I come from, from theater as well. I was a theater major as well. Um, and the one thing I know from performing was your comedy chops are actually a almost like a bigger skill level than dramatic. I mean, dramatic, you have to have a clear instrument and emote and all that and get in touch with those characterizations. But to have the comedic timing you do, that's actually a tougher skill set. So I, I, I really think you're going to transition well if you find that right part. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Alan, I want to go back to the film itself, though. There are some really fascinating things in um, Boy Culture Generation X that, um, and maybe they were part of the book, but, um, and I don't want to give too much away, but some of the scenarios that X finds himself in were actually preludes to some pretty interesting conversations that could be had, particularly over like the use of the N word. Um, can you speak to that and kind of some of the conversations you hope get started as a result of people watching the film? Sure. Sure. First, I want to say um, you're so right in giving Jason so much praise for that performance. Uh, one thing that Jason mentioned just now is that he saw the audition in a tweet from Daryl. Like, so that 
you're not tweeting for actors unless you are desperately looking. We went through well over 100 people looking for someone for this role. Um, and Jason came in and knocked his audition out of the park. He inhabited that role immediately. He was exactly what we were imagining in our heads. And um, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, we wrote the role thinking it would be easy to cast. It was the most difficult role to cast. It took so long, and it was right before the shoot that we actually were lucky enough. We were desperately tweeting that we were lucky enough to get an audition from him. So uh, you are so right in giving him all that praise for, for that role. Well, and thank you, Jason, for coming in and saving I don't think I knew that. So that's very flattering. <laughs> New well, I mean, you well, came in, that, you were like, you auditioned, you did your callback on our set. Remember that? <laughs> like we were I do, yes. Yeah, we were like, we have to cast somebody. We were so desperate. And then you just came in and like, you were what we were looking for all along. It was amazing. Well, I can tell you Aww. from the fan chair, <laughs> watching, watching the first film and then watching um, the, the new um, – a sequel to it it was like okay because joey was great in the first film and it was mm-hmm. uh, seeing like the stills for the second one was like wait that's not the same joey is it or that's not joey <laughs> and in other words you 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 filled the look of the joey character <laughs> to a t so that it it didn't feel like something well, was missing <laughs> For us, yep, it wasn't so but, much about the look. That, it was about the dynamic of the right. kind of intergenerational experience that they that they have um, in the queer community, especially when intergenerational means be 25 and 18, right? <laughs> and we wanted that to translate that into the new series, but we didn't want to, like, just make a copycat Joey or to have the same dynamic where it's this younger person learning. So we wanted to turn that on its head and, like, what can we learn from the younger generation? And so that's kind of where Chase came from. Yeah, and and it worked so well because within the first few minutes of the sequel, it was like this is brilliant. Is this guy is this guy is taking it to the next level? It's, it was it was um, it the flow between the two felt not only appropriate mm-hmm. but it, it it created to me as as the viewer and the fan of the film, you know, it created the momentum. For, for both the character and the themes, where it's mm-hmm. you, because the character had, between the two characters, they had that through line, it was like the um, kind of the wave of progress that happens to X that kind of overtakes him, uh, completely mm-hmm. made sense and felt completely organic. Um, you know, it wasn't like, where it could have felt very forced and it didn't it was just like wow this this yeah. it just just clicked you know completely yeah x and andrew both have this kind of very stoic and almost reserved presence um so someone like chase coming in and really shaking that up just really um makes the dynamic so much more interesting to me and you feel that in the film because in the in the first um, uh, not version uh, the first film the the Joey character pulls the other two characters out somewhat 
but in the um, the new ver- version, um, Chase really is a catalyst for growth for both of them. You see it in the scenes with them; mm-hmm. they come out more. They're they're just you know the actualization just feels even more nuanced because of the interaction with the Chase character, in my opinion. Just mm-hmm. my view yeah, of it. Thanks, thank but, you. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I feel that too, and, and that's one of the things we're hoping for. Um, regards to your earlier question, one of the things we definitely wanted to do was um, not just explore what are different kinds of clients that that X could be hooking up with, but more importantly, what is he learning from them, and how how can we have different discussions about things that affect our community through stacks and how do we um, how we view stacks and how we interact with, how we interact with each other they they're often very linked and so we are looking for opportunities to to kind of tell those stories um, so we had first first it was like our writing process was like sex okay what's all the kind of cool sex stuff and who could who could be an interesting client and then we went through that and then well what did he learn from that we you know, that would be interesting, but what can he, he learn? And it was in the what can he learn where we decided we narrowed it down to the stories that we really wanted to to spend an episode on and, and tell. Yeah, it just there were things about the scenarios that you portrayed, and I don't want to go into the specifics because I want people just to experience mm-hmm. it and watch the movie themselves. But there are questions that came up that the film doesn't really even answer. It just it really does a great job of bringing up the question like what is what are the factors for individual people that in their sexual scenarios they get excited by something that in their real world life would absolutely offend the hell out of them. Um, but mm-hmm. that offense in the sexual situation becomes exciting and um Mm -hmm. then the other aspect the other scenario is you know you know we get very identified with our sexuality and we fought to be able to be who we are but then there's a curiosity about well what if i dabble in the sexuality that i'm not or that i'm not identifying Mm -hmm. um so it's interesting to see those what was what was it like trying to write those? It was really fun. Um, Matthew Rettenman is brilliant and hilarious, uh, an amazing collaborator. He's a, he created the character X, the author of the original novel. Um, this follow-up does, doesn't have any overlap with the novel or the previous film because it's so many years later. So we had to create everything together. And it was really just kind of about conversations about some of those things that you're talking about, like, and some, and sometimes these conversations don't have answers. For example, um, what is safe sex? Is being is you know is taking Truvada enough? Is is do you wear a condom? Where do you draw the line? What which you know condoms can protect from so much, or uh, I mean pills can protect so much, condoms can protect from more. Um, what are those conversations about around barebacking? You know, um, I don't know that there is a right or wrong answer, um, but it seems like everyone has an answer for themselves, and that's 
one of the conversations we wanted to talk about. Same with uh, exploring se sexuality. Uh, a lot of gay men I know consider themselves 26, very would be gay for, you know, absolutely gay. Uh, would they have sex with someone who is not the same gender? Absolutely no. What if you are getting paid for it? Maybe. Wait, does that mean that I'm bi? So uh, mm -hmm. that kind of conversation, not, there might not be an answer for that. Uh, but it's, it was a fun and interesting conversation that we wanted to explore. Yeah, no, it was interesting. In fact, <laughs> I mean, for me watching it, this is maybe a little bit TMI, but it's like, you know, I'm sorry, I, they could give me a lot of money, but, you know, <laughs> there are probably parts that for me that were just absolutely wouldn't work. So, you know, and <laughs> right? the parts, the, the, could the parts that would money? not be simulated by money. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe, maybe. I, does that mean that yeah, you, then does that mean that you're bi, right? Does that mean that you're not fully gay? It yeah. could. Well, it's I mean, and at in, what in point, a lot of and ways, when you bring gender into it, at what point is someone on the on the gender spectrum not your um not the person that you're identified, you know? So I don't know there's not well, a numbered gender spectrum at this point, but um you know, that brings in a whole new realm of possibilities and identities. Well, that, and that's the thing. It's, for me, in my opinion, on gender and sexuality, I believe mm -hmm. in the spectrum in both cases. You know, so yeah. it's like there's, you know, it's, there's, there's a new app, and this is going to be very left field, but there's a new app out now where if you want to buy a car, that you can play with the app on your down payment, and your monthly payments and you you play around you find the right formula that works for you and you know it sends it off to the dealer and you can buy your car and i think that is actually closer an analogy to sexuality and gender as to where on the spectrum is your uniqueness appearing mm -hmm. and what is the you know what is the attraction going to be as a result of that um you know i'm you know, on the sexuality one, you know, I am definitely in the deep, deep in the gay bucket. You know, is this, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's where I personally am. But I don't, I, I think the vast majority are in the middle, which is part of the reason why we're seeing young people embracing being LGBTQ where we didn't mm -hmm. in the past because a lot of them are going, okay, I'm not, I'm not necessarily fully gay, but I'm definitely not fully straight. And, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle, which is probably the truth. And that probably has always been the truth, that we've had to throw yeah. labels, you know, one way or the other. So, well, yeah, I mean, the reason there are labels is because some cis-hat-identified person decided that's the way it's going to be, and it rolled out through colonization. And we've had to disrupt that and say, wait a minute, we are all not that. In fact, like, there is no definition. We're just all beings wanting to be with other beings, you know, <laughs> with each other. Uh, and we've had to label ourselves just to differentiate from the one accepted thing that, that somehow became the norm. No, absolutely. I think that's one thing that is, 
it's not necessarily a, a message that the film hits you over the head with, but it is a takeaway because the ex goes through all this, these scenes and is questioning himself and evaluating everything else. And there's a lot of energy he extends to just constantly questioning himself mm-hmm. and his experiences. And it's like, God, wouldn't it be so much more pleasant to just, you know, allow yourself the freedom to explore that. And I think that's, um, uh, Jason, your character kind of embodies that in a way um, where it's, and that's some of the looks that you give through the film is sort of like, why are you worrying about it? Yeah, I I think that's something that, yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that we're definitely seeing, not just with my generation, but the generation after me. I mean, there's this whole trend on TikTok now um, making fun of millennials because we like our labels and it's the generation after me. Basically the, the trend is like calling out like, Oh, I'm a cisgendered homosexual uh, white man who's part Latino who, and then it's the younger generation laughing at that. I mean, like look at these millennials with their precious little labels. Like we don't need to ascribe to one or the other. We can just be, who we are and if today I fall in love with a man then that's okay and if tomorrow it's a woman then that's okay too and if I'm trans that's also okay so there's much more of a blurred line I'm seeing come up now um, which is great because that's what we wanted anyway moving forward Um, so I, I, I definitely do see that being the case especially with the younger generation yeah, definitely. And I think to be fair, and this is going to be a weird statement, but I think this is what the conservatives were afraid of to begin with, because this is the kind of freedom that they didn't want us to have. They didn't want to have it themselves. And that's why the fight is so vehement um, to keep gender roles the way they've been. You know, they're very, very threatened by the idea that you can be something other than that bucket of role as it is defined. Um, so Jason, I want to pivot one question, though, on the, the film itself and, and um, your involvement in it. What was your favorite scene in the movie to do? Which one did you enjoy the most? Huh. My, I would have to say the the superhero scenes with Ralph. Ralph Cole is an amazing actor. He's hysterical. Um, he's very easy to play off of. And the costumes were very comfortable. So that was a lot of fun. Also, the fact that Derek was slightly uncomfortable in his costume was kind of, was kind of funny to me because <laughs> they, were, they were pretty tight. Um, but I enjoyed it. So that's, and I think, I believe that's one of the, the final episodes, if not the final episode. Um, but definitely the, the superhero. We actually went to a, a comic convention. It was a horror convention, right, Alan? To shoot some of it. And it was a little gorilla style. Yeah. yeah, it was. So that was fun, kind of being chased out in the real world where nobody really knew we were actually filming for this series but we had to stay in character because we were at an actual convention. That was an experience that I had never had before. And it was a lot of fun. 
Well, it was that that whole scenario was was great and hilarious, and it was one of the places in the film where a lot of your nonverbal um, cues and reactions were very upfront. There was one point where you turn and indicate to X to kind of get in line, and it was all nonverbal, and you just like. It was like it was just masterful. It was really, really like a, a keystone of your performance that that you had control on the screen that way without saying a word, and but you communicated it all beautifully. Um, and and it just and the timing of it worked with the sort of comedic element of the scene. Um, so just just one one of many moments in the film that was like aces. Perfect. Um, Thank you. It's also one of the episodes where we actually see the generational gap that we're that we're talking about, um, where we have Ralph's character um, kind of connect with X about how Case and the younger generation doesn't have so much knowledge about the AIDS HIV crisis and how they're so much more, I guess, free in their sexual exploration, whereas Ralph's character. Has still has some deep rooted traumas about that, so it's it's one of the episodes where we actually get to see the difference in perspective, which I, I kind of like also. Yeah, definitely. I hate to say this, but I know an hour seems like a long interview, but we are down to our last two minutes. So I want to thank you both for number one making the film. Um, I want our viewers to go watch it and get it. It is available on all uh, film on demand, TV on demand locations. So check that out. Um, I want to thank you guys for coming on the show today. Um, this has been awesome, and um, we've loved loved having you. Um, also, want to thank Brody Lebeck for his production of the show and for being the editor of the LA Blade. Um, again, you want to read that, and that can be found at LosAngelesBlade.com. And as for us at Rated LGBT Radio, we will be back again next week with a really great show. I have no idea what it will be, but I can guarantee you it will be great. And we will be talking to you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.